You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Hey guys, how you doing? Good, 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 good. Glad you guys are here tonight. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be tonight. Before we head there, I want to pray. Father, um, God, thank you for gathering us here this evening. And Lord, thank you for the gospel of Luke. Lord, thank you for the way that you impress upon Luke, a doctor, to write in a, um, in a very organized fashion um, as he wrote this letter, as he wrote this gospel, as he wrote about the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do on who Jesus continues to be and what Jesus continues to do. Lord, thank you for that portrait that Luke paints for us. Lord, I just recognize that you are the great shepherd of our souls and our hearts. And one of the things that we need the most is to just encounter you. I know that there is nothing that is more important than for us to encounter you in a very real way. And so, Lord, we just beg you, we plead with you, we ask you that as we open your word together this evening, God, we pray that as your spirit moves throughout this place this evening, that you would open our hearts and help us to hear from you and help us to encounter you, the great shepherd of our souls, the one who goes to great lengths to bring us back into the family again the great shepherd of our souls who goes to great lengths to give of yourself completely so that we could die to ourselves completely and follow you completely and be healed completely. Lord, we just, we need you and we need that fresh encounter this evening. So God, I pray that that as we open your word together that you would just speak boldly and that you would speak clearly. And then it would just be your words this evening, Lord, that you would provide encouragement where encouragement is needed, that you would challenge boldly where, where bold challenge is needed, and that you would uh, continue the process of ripping idols out of our hearts and help us to turn our eyes and our hearts towards you, to worship you as the one true and only God. Lord, I pray that you would do that for us this evening. I pray, God, that it would be as though you walk into this room this evening and that you would just come and sit, like almost, almost tangibly and physically, physically, like right next to us, put your arm around us and just walk through this text with us. I pray, God, that you would do that. I trust that you will. In Jesus' name, and everybody said. I was thinking about uh, this passage of Scripture uh, this week as I studied through and looked at some of the commentaries. And It wasn't that I don't necessarily track timelines and know where I'm at, so to speak. But it was almost like when I woke up this morning and I went, oh, it's that day. For me, what that means is it's not the day when Super Bowl gets to be on TV, but it's that day when I remember that two years ago, today, I received a call at 5 o'clock in the morning that my mom had passed away after a long battle with cancer. And so there's been quite a few people who have been asking, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing okay. But I know that, that one of the things that I thought about throughout this week, uh, knowing that I was coming into this day, that I would be preaching this evening as well, and that we'd be in this text specifically, and I was just thinking about the life of my mom and, and growing up with her. She's a good lady. Good lady, made a lot of mistakes. She's a good lady. 
One of my old memories of her uh, were the different guys that would come in and out of our house. My dad left when I was five. He took all the money and left. And I remember coming down the stairs when I was five and seeing my mom sitting at the table crying because my dad left and just basically had abandoned us. And at the age of five, trying to wrap my head around what that meant for us, right? And then over the years, watching her kind of bounce from one relationship to the next and watching these guys come in and out of the house, and I, I, I probably haven't told this story much in this, I have told it in other settings, but I remember, my, my sister and I will kind of joke about this sometimes, we remember this one guy that we always called um, Ernie the Hairy Ape Man. <laughs> Short little guy named Ernie, and uh, he had a lot of hair on his back. And it would stick out over like the collars of his shirt. Strange. I, I don't know if that happened because he was like shaving his back. I don't know who does that. Um, <laughs> he would come and he would hang out um, o- o- during the week and then he would go home. And at some point we found out that he had a wife somewhere else. Come to find out he was just using my mom for sex and anything else that he could get. And then there was this other guy that came in um, for a while. His name was Paul. We called him Paul the Pathological Liar because he literally lied all the time. Like there was nothing that, that he could say that you could actually believe would be the truth. Guy was just scumbag, right? Another guy named uh, Marty, we called him Marty the Banker. He was pretty wealthy, and he was a banker. And uh, he had like cerebral palsy, so cerebral palsy or something like that, so he kind of walked with a limp and he would walk with a cane. But he was kind of a city boy, and we were country people. And I think after a while, he realized my mom wasn't going to move out of the country, and so he didn't want to be with her anymore, and so he took off and found somebody else. There was another guy named Bob Linville. We called him, um, we called him uh, like Bob the Tree Man, because he, he always wore like this, uh, um, this, flannel, this red flannel shirt. And uh, he was real tall, real skinny. Bob had a real anger control problem, though. And if one of us did something wrong, he would yell at us a lot. And so I tell you these stories because these are the guys that were like my model, right, growing up. These are the guys that, these are the guys that for me were the model of dad or the model of father or the model of man or the model of brother maybe. This, these guys were the ones that taught me everything that I knew about being a guy. And the things that I learned from these guys was you come and you use people for what you can get out of them. And when you can no longer get from them what you'd like to get from them, you leave and you find somebody else that you can use and abuse. And so then, consequently, I began to live my life some of the same way at some point too. But in my mind growing up, I think this is the way that I thought of these guys. I thought of these guys like the biggest stinking scumbags on the face of the planet. And I think as a young kid, I just think I didn't know how to cope with what was going on with them. And as I think about that, it kind of sends my mind into the passage of text that we're going to be in this evening. And I want to ask you a question. If you could describe the biggest scumbag that you've ever met, who would that be? If you could put a name on the biggest scumbag you've ever heard of that's ever walked the face of this planet, who would that person be? Maybe the worst criminal? Maybe the person who's used and abused people the most that you knew? 
I want you to imagine if that person was sitting in the front row this evening, how would you react and how would you respond? What would well up from deep within your heart if that person was sitting in this room tonight? What would you say? What would you be tempted to do? How would you interact with that person? What would you be thinking? It's into that tension that this text preaches to us this evening. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needs no repentance. The thing about Jesus in this passage, the thing about Jesus that we see in this text is that Jesus does what we don't naturally do. Jesus does all of the things that you and I will not naturally do because left to our natural selves, we will make a big, fat, stinking mess of things. Jesus does the things that we don't naturally do. The first things that we see that Jesus does in this passage is that he welcomes and hangs out with scumbags. Like we don't naturally desire to hang out with people that we would put in that category of scumbag. We are, we are always working to better our circle of friends. Typically looking for people maybe that are just like us. People that we can take over the world together with, right? People we have something in common with. Maybe common likes, common dreams, common life goals, common life problems. That's the way that we have a tendency to approach relationship and friendship. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't behave the way that we do. He doesn't do what we do. Jesus actually does what we don't naturally do. Luke tells us in verses 1 and 2, if you look at it, he tells us that a bunch of tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they start grumbling. They start mumbling. They start complaining. They start whining. And they start saying this. They start saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In other words, the Pharisees and the scribes are like all ticked off, all pissed off, all butthurt because Jesus is welcoming people whom they consider to be the scum of the earth. Like Jesus is welcoming them into relationship with him. He's hanging out with them. But Jesus doesn't do what we typically do. Jesus doesn't choose his friendships based upon what he receives in return. Doesn't, doesn't choose his friendships based upon the pleasure that he gets from the relationship. Jesus does not choose friendships and relationship based upon the class of public recognition that he may gain from having that relationship. I consider sitting back with this big smug look on his face, this big holier-than-thou look on his face because he's actually better than everybody else. 
because Jesus actually is better than everybody else. So if anybody had a right to do that, Jesus could have done that. But he doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do what we naturally do. Jesus actually welcomes and hangs out with people that we might think are scumbags. Another thing we see about Jesus is that he also pursues people. He pursues scumbags until he finds them. Like we don't typically wake up in the morning thinking, man, how excited I am to pursue friendships with people that I think are scumbags. Right? You're going to hear this word over and over and over again throughout this message and you're probably going to get tired of hearing it. We don't wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to go find a scumbag to be a friend with. We don't don't think that way, right? Our hearts are not bent towards investing ourselves relationally in the weak, the downtrodden, the poor in the spirit, the elderly, the sick, the homeless, the criminal, the woman who is struggling with bouncing from one sexual relationship to the next, maybe the man who is hooked on pornography or the teenager who just turned up pregnant. We're not bent towards these kinds of relationships. The girl who talks about herself all the time. Or the guy who struggles psychologically or the person who keeps stealing from everyone. We don't, we don't typically intentionally pursue those kinds of friendships and relationships. It's not part of the way we are built naturally. We typically hide from them at worst. Or at best, we invest little bits and pieces. Jesus, Jesus doesn't do what we do. right? Jesus actually does what we don't naturally do. As soon as Jesus hears the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling about him welcoming and hanging out with scumbags, Luke tells us in verse 3 that that Jesus responds by telling a parable, which is just a story meant to explain spiritual truth. And Jesus begins his story in verse 4 as we read it by asking this question. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. So let this question resonate with you for a minute. Simply asking, you've got a great crowd of friends over here that's working out really good for you. What will you do if one of those people in that crowd of friends gets lost and is hanging off the edge of the cliff over here? What will you do? And he does it by telling a parable about sheep and shepherds. Interesting thing about sheep and shepherds is that Jesus is the chief shepherd telling this story to a bunch of Pharisees and scribes who had been entrusted with the spiritual shepherding of Israel. And they were making a big mess of it in the process. And the reality is that as Jesus asked this question, here's the reality. The reality is that none of the people that were listening to Jesus would have left 99 to find one. That might shock you. That might shock you. It's meant to get your attention. As Jesus asked this question, the reality is that nobody that was listening to him would go after one sheep that was lost. And here's the reason why. If you had 100 sheep, you were wealthy. Like you were really rich. And there's two reasons that you would not go after the one lost sheep. Number one, number one, would cost you an awful lot of money for you to go after that sheep if you went. 
Number two, at best, if you did send someone after the sheep, you would send your lowest paid person to go get that sheep, your lowest paid person. You would not invest a lot in finding a lost sheep if you are a wealthy shepherd. And so the, so the answer that Jesus elicits, the answer that Jesus actually gets from these folks that are listening is, no, I would not go looking for a lost sheep. Jesus isn't like us, is he? Right? Jesus doesn't do what we do. Instead of paying more attention to like super valuable 99 sheep that are sitting in, uh, the, in, the, in the sheep pen with him, he instead actually leaves those 99 sheep in the care of under shepherds. And he goes after that one sheep that is lost. This is what Jesus does. This is why the Pharisees and the scribes are so ticked off at him. They're ticked off at him because he doesn't do what they do. As you think about this for a minute, is there a piece of you deep down inside that gets upset when you realize Jesus would have done that differently? When you realize that you began to handle a certain situation or a certain relationship in a way that was different than the way Jesus would have handled it? Jesus doesn't do what we naturally do. What Jesus actually does is he intentionally pursues scumbags until he finds them. Jesus gets up in the morning if Jesus sleeps. Jesus gets up in the morning the first thing he thinks about is pursuing a ton of scumbags down. That's what he does. The thing that we notice about Jesus is that he also rejoices in carrying scumbags out of their mess. He rejoices in that. He finds joy in that. We don't typically rejoice when someone calls us to help them get through their mess. Just think about that. Like I realize we've probably got a room full of us codependent people, right? I get that. Most of us are probably that way. But the reality is this. There's something deep down inside that when somebody calls you and asks for help, your first inclination is not like leap off the stage, joy, let me help you. I realize some of us can push back and say, well, I know it's the right thing to do to help. Yes. But I think if you dig deep down inside, you'll either A, find a resistance towards helping others or impure motives for helping others deep down inside of us because we are sinful, sinful to the core. Fallen, we're broken. We've been abused, we've been hurt, therefore we abuse and we hurt. We live in a world that is caught up in the chaos of sin and everyone wrestles with that, every one of us does. And so then in the middle of this, what we learn about Jesus is that he doesn't do what we do. What he actually does is the things that we don't find Natural. He does those things. He, he lives the life that he calls us to live. He carries scumbags out of their mess and he finds joy in that. Jesus continues in the midst of this as he's talking to these grumbling Pharisees and scribes. You look at verse 5, he explains, he says, he says, when he has found the lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. I want you to think of this image in this picture. This is Jesus coming into the mess of everyone's lives and finding uh, like a sheep stuck in the mess and unable to get out. And I, you think about sheep for a minute. Anybody ever been around sheep much? Like if you haven't, I like encourage you, go visit a sheep farm this next week. Number one, sheep stink really, really bad. 
Sheep are messy. Sheep are nasty. And sheep can be really flat out mean. Like when I was growing up, my mom had all of these pets. What were there 33 different living, breathing animals on her farm that we had to figure out how to get rid of. And we lived here, and she lived near Lincoln, so there was a big mess. She had chickens and guineas and dogs and cats and horses and peacocks. She didn't have any sheep. But when I was a kid, we had friends who had sheep. We had friends that had cows. Stinky creatures. Messy to take care of. You're not going to get in there and take care of a sheep in a sheep pen or take care of a cow without getting a little bit of mess on your shoes. And in fact, you're probably going to get messy everywhere. The other reality about helping sheep out, when you're just talking real literal sheep, you're going to walk out smelling really, really bad at the end of the day. And this passage makes it clear that when Jesus goes after like lost scumbags, what he does is he gets down in the mess with them. He picks them up and puts them on his shoulders. He's willing to touch. He's willing to speak to. He's willing to spend the time that it takes to get that sheep over his shoulders. You think about a sheep who thinks he's got it all right, doesn't realize that he's actually lost, and he's stuck in the midst of that muck and that mire. You're down in the midst of that, and you're fighting with him and trying to get him up out of it, and you're trying to get him over your shoulder, and they're kicking you, and they're biting you. That's a great analogy. I mean, isn't this the way that we typically treat Jesus? When you think of the Pharisees in this passage, isn't this what they're doing to him? Didn't Jesus say that he came to save the lost sheep of Israel? In the midst of walking this out in front of that crowd of people, they were biting and they were kicking and they were a mess. <laughs> Lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Rejoicing. We don't find joy when somebody calls and says, hey, I got myself into this again. He left me again. I was on my laptop again, looking at pornography again last night. I need you to help me. I got angry with my wife again. I've lost the hope and the desire to be a husband or a wife again. Can you help me out of this? When you get those phone calls, joy is not the first thing that comes to mind. Jesus says that for him, it's joyful. He was joyful when he came and he found you. He was joyful when he came and he sat down in the midst of your mess. He was joyful in the midst of this passage. When you think about the intimacy of Jesus as he carries this sheep over his shoulders, how many, how many miles? How many miles was Jesus trudging as he tells this story? I think the endurance of the shepherd, right? Like the endurance of Jesus as he throws us over his shoulders and walks with us through those deep, tumultuous, sin-infested times of our lives. When he picks us back up because we've ran off the nearest cliff again and made a mess out of things. Think of the intimacy of those moments. Jesus is walking and you're over his shoulders and he's speaking to you. Those moments when you've made a big mess out of your life again and you think, it's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault. 
seasons where you made a big mess out of your life and you're beating the hell out of yourself because you made a mess out of yourself? Let's be honest, like the guilt and the shame that comes out of the messes that we make of our lives. What do you think Jesus is saying to that sheep as he's walking? What is he speaking to you in these moments as you think about your own life? And he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Like Jesus doesn't go out looking for lost scumbags so then he can like stand over the top of them while they're sitting in the mess of their sins, yell at them and degrade them for being stupid. It's not Jesus. This might be what we would do. Stop it now. Bury you alive in a box, right? <laughs> if anybody wants to know the meaning of that, I'll show you the video afterwards. It's hilarious. Like instead of antagonizing poor and helpless and lost and hurting sheep, Jesus, Jesus actually picks them up and carries them out of the middle of their mess. And he doesn't do it while grumbling. He doesn't do it about whining and pining and being angry and butthurt because they, we're not doing what he wants us to do. I mean, you think about this. Think of the measure of grace in our relationship with Jesus. How often do you and I always think we got it right? Like we arrived... Like, Jesus, I've been doing this really well. It's her fault. Right? Jesus walks with us in the middle of that. Reminds us. Reminds us that we still need him. Speaks to us about his great love for us. I'm just thinking in the middle of worship this evening like I was just caught up in the songs even. And the gentle theme of hope in front of me. The gentle theme of love never leaving the gentle theme of not fearing and the heart-pounding drum in the middle of that, driving out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. We are a fearful people. We run from God and we put on fig leaves because we're ashamed of our nakedness in front of Him. It's been an issue since the garden. Our fig leaves look like the blame game the excuse game, the he or she rather than me game. What happens is instead of owning our sin and owning our mess, we sit in it, right? We blame on other people and then we live in bondage and we never get free. But the reality in the gospel is that because Jesus did what he did, I can now be responsible for my sin. I can now own my sin. I can now say, hey, and that was a sin. It was me. I can now say that, and then I can repent, which means to turn from that sin and be set free and no longer be in bondage. So that, that's what the gospel does for us. And as Jesus, I think, picks up sheep, after pursuing them and carrying them out of their mess, I think he's having conversations with them about that message of the gospel and about how he alone is sufficient as a shepherd for us. Suffering shepherd, suffering servant, came so that you and I might be served well in the message of the cross, so that we might be saved, changed. It's not just that we would be saved from the penalty of our sin. It's not just that we would be saved from the mess of our sin. It's that we would also be saved from the power of our sin. Romans makes it very clear that when Jesus comes and picks you up out of your mess, and when he carries you down the road, 
And as he carries you over his shoulders, what's really happening in the midst of that is he is breaking the power of the bondage of sin in our lives. So often Christians live as though there's no power. He does this with joy. He does this with joy. A smile on his face time and time and time again, over and over and over and over again. Jesus does what we don't naturally do. He rejoices in carrying scumbags out of their mess. Another thing that Jesus does is that he also throws a party for scumbags when he brings them home. Put yourself in the place of these Pharisees and these scribes who are grumbling. Like they weren't rejoicing at the moment. They were grumbling because of Jesus. So what Jesus does is tells them in verse 6 that when he pursues lost sheep until he finds them, and then he carries them out of their mess with joy, he then comes home and calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. This is a very personal word. I have found my sheep that was lost. And Jesus thinks about you in your waywardness. He thinks about my sheep, not that stupid sheep, not that dumb sheep, not that rebellious sheep, not that good-for-nothing sheep. He thinks of you as my sheep. This is important for us to understand that when Jesus relates to us as a shepherd, he actually relates to us not like the God who is so far off from us that we have to work to get close to him. He relates to us like a really good father who is standing right next to us and is like, hey, you're mine. I came and found you and pursued you because you belong to me. Like if you flip over and you look at the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is really clear that all whom the Father has given to Jesus, Jesus has. The Father is the one who is responsible for taking pictures of each of us and putting those pictures in the pocket of Jesus as Jesus then leaves the, room, the, the throne room and then comes here, walks out his life to the cross with that picture still in his pocket. The Father is the one that put those there. The Spirit then is the one who draws them in. The Spirit is the one that woos. The Spirit is the one that comes and speaks. The Spirit is the one that convinces and convicts us of our sin. The Spirit is the one that unites us as a church family. And Jesus, the shepherd, is the one with the pictures inside of his pocket. And when he brings my sheep back, his sheep, ones that belong to him, why, why, think about it for a minute. Like why, why does he use this language? Why do we belong to him? Because the Father gave us to him, number one. Number two, he purchased us back from a really filthy owner. A really filthy slave owner is actually what he did. He paid the price and he bought us back from that slave owner. That slave owner was sin. It owned us. Sin owns you and I. If you, are, if you are outside of Christ, if you have not trusted in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, Sin owns you. It is your slave master. It is beating the crap out of you day in and day out. When Jesus the shepherd comes to seek and to save that which was lost, when he comes to do that, he comes to save scumbags, and then he throws a big fat party because he has now become your owner. 
This is the reason that Christians can say with joy, He is my Jesus and I am His. This is the reason. Because the Father has put you into the pocket of His Son, into the hand of His Son, and then His Son went to the cross for you. Jesus tells them in verse 6, and He carries us out of our mess with joy. He then comes home and calls together His friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with Me, for I found My sheep that was lost. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. This is the song that should be written on the heart of every believer in this room. Jesus comes so that you can be found, so that you can see. So that you can move out of bondage to freedom. So that you can come out of that mess of sin and so that that power and penalty could be broken by the cross again. Jesus doesn't do what we do, right? We don't throw parties about this often. Jesus doesn't do what we do. Instead of like dropping off the newfound sheep back in the sheep pen to just kind of care for themselves and take care of themselves, Jesus actually throws this big wild party to celebrate their homecoming by inviting the entire community to join in that joyous party. Jesus does what we don't naturally do. What he's really doing is he's, it's, it's like a picture of inviting the church family to celebrate the gospel when someone who was lost is now found. As a community of the gospel, for the gospel, by the gospel, this is something we celebrate. This is why like a few weeks ago when we did baptisms, we celebrated that. It's a picture of people who have, who have said, I'm, I'm, I'm surrendering my life to Jesus, the chief shepherd. I know I'm still stinky. I know I'm still a mess. I know I'm still going to biff it. I'm pursuing him from this point forward because he pursued me. And then we threw like a raucous party in the middle of it, right? Another thing that we see about Jesus is this. We see that Jesus doesn't just rejoice over when like somebody comes and walks into the church family. He also rejoices over scumbags who walk in authentic repentance. Like I think it's far too easy for us in the church today like to succumb to either one or two different ways of thinking and behaving in regards to how we are supposed to live out the life of a church family. Like one of, one of the most popular ways of thinking and behaving and believing, and you see it in the church all the time today, it basically says that the church is supposed to be like a museum for spiritually mature saints to show off their righteousness. And this was part of the problem in this text. Pharisees and the scribes thought they had it all together. And they were ticked off that Jesus wouldn't be spending time with them after all of their self-righteous efforts. Like, I got this together. What are you doing hanging out with that guy? I can't believe you're doing that. That was their attitude. I can't believe you would spend time with him or her. You're supposed to spend time with me because I got this right. You're supposed to help me because I did what you asked me to do. You're supposed to provide for me because I did what you said. Like their, their view of Jesus as the shepherd was so backwards. The other popular way of thinking and believing, I think, in the church today says that the church is supposed to be a refuge for sinners to come and then continue living however they want because everybody should be accepted, right? We should not reject anybody. The problem with that view today is that it 
presents a bride of Christ that is not actually growing in holiness. Presents a picture of the bride of Christ who continues to walk in her sin rather than wants to walk in a holy way because of the Savior that saved them. The problem with both of those ways of thinking and behaving within the church is that they are both based more upon what we would rather have than on what Jesus does because the church is not meant to be either of those two things. The church is meant to be more like a hospital or a rescue shelter for broken scumbags to find healing and change. That's the reality when it comes to church. Jesus says in verse 7 that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In other words, Jesus doesn't get all jacked up by us like showing off our righteousness. He doesn't get all jacked up by showing off the righteousness of people who think they have no need to repent. This is not what sends Jesus through the roof. Jesus gets jacked up and like runs through the roof by showing off his own glory through scumbags who do repent and trust in his righteousness. It's his goodness that is given to us through the cross. It's what then motivates us to walk in a holy way. Change, sanctification is a lifelong process. It will not happen overnight. Man, if you're, if you're wondering why you can't get it together in terms of your finances, we're still going to be having the conversation 20 years from now. You're still struggling with some of those sins that have held you down. Some of those patterns in your life. We're still going to be having the conversation 20 years from now. Jesus breaks the power over that sin so that you can continue to repent and continue to walk back towards Him. That's the reality of our shepherd Jesus. And He says that all of heaven goes absolutely berserk, crazy, wild, like a Super Bowl party on a Sunday night over true, authentic repentance. Jesus doesn't do what we do. Jesus isn't just standing there like right next to us like a baseball coach telling us to to give it our best shot and become like more successful because we are so talented. This is not Jesus. Jesus isn't running next to us coaching us to grow in our self-esteem because we are so much better than we think we are. Jesus does what we don't naturally do. He rejoices over scumbags who actually authentically repent. We invite our music team to come forward as we wrap things up. (coughs) As we bring this to a close this evening, I just want to summarize all the things that I've said this way. Just think about this. Think about the fact that, that Jesus, again, does not do what we naturally do Jesus actually does what what we don't naturally do. He welcomes and hangs out with scumbags, with sinners, with people who are broken, hurting, and lost. With people who get on our nerves. With people that we're tired of being around because they've messed it up too many times. Jesus continues to do this. He continues to pursue scumbags until He finds them. He doesn't give up. 
He rejoices in carrying scumbags out of their mess. He, he doesn't do this grumbling, though this is the way that we often live our lives with each other as we grumble. He throws parties for scumbags that he brings home. He rejoices over us when we repent. The interesting portion of this entire text is the Pharisees and the scribes in contrast to Jesus. Alluded to this earlier. The reality is that God had given the Pharisees and the scribes a responsibility to shepherd and to lead Israel faithfully. But they failed. They failed drastically because they thought that what they could do was build their own lives in such a way that it would, it would, it would, it would make it look as though they were perfect. And then by having this severe self-focus on what they could do, what they could provide, what they could make happen, and what they could bring around, and what they had done in terms of their righteousness, was, by doing so is that they excluded people that were right in front of them that needed Jesus just as much as they did. It's a mistake that we often make as husbands and fathers. We, we miss the glory that is right in front of us every day. Moms and wives and ladies who are sisters, guys who have brothers. And we miss the glory of God that is in front of us every day in terms of people. And because we want to be the hero, because we want to get the accolades, because we want to live in a way that says, I saved myself, I, I provided for me, I made this happen. And don't, don't get me wrong, like our lives are motivated by some of these things in very pure ways, but one of the most impure things inside of us is this bent towards self-salvation and others' persecution. Because you didn't save yourself the way that I saved me, I no longer have time for you. This was the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes. And when you look at Jesus, you see him doing everything that we don't naturally do. You see him living in, in such a way that is so contrary to our perceived concepts and ideas of, of living out our daily lives that it, it can be shocking. And that's what was happening with these Pharisees and scribes. I don't know how many of the Pharisees and scribes could authentically say at some point that they once were blind, but now they could see. They once were lost, but now they were found. I imagine there were some of them. The reality about the Pharisees and the scribes is that they were scumbags too. They were scumbags in, in need of Jesus just as much as the sinners and the other scumbags that were sitting there. The Pharisees and the scribes were just as much scumbags as the people that they thought were scumbags. They just couldn't see past the tip of their nose. They couldn't see that they were the problem too. The scriptures make it clear that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all are like sheep that have gone astray. We all are like shepherds who've neglected our responsibilities to care for the less fortunate among us. We all have pursued the appetite of our bellies, which leads to destruction. Every one of us is guilty of that. The psalmist makes it clear that there is no one, there is no one who has not made a mess of their lives. When I asked us earlier to think about the biggest scumbag who'd ever lived, 
I suspect that like not many of us thought about ourselves. I doubt that many of us thought of ourselves as being maybe the biggest scumbags in need of Jesus. But the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul made it very clear that he thought that he was the biggest scumbag in need of Jesus. I believe that any of us, if any of us are here that actually claim Christ as Lord and Savior, then the reality of our hearts is that we need to be able to come to Jesus, not just the first time saying, I am the biggest scumbag who's ever lived, and I need you, Jesus, to save me and radically change me. It's not just that one time. It's a continued every day and moment by moment. I am the biggest scumbag in this room. And I really need Jesus to continue saving me and radically changing me. What would this look like for you and for I to catch like a different vision of the gospel for scumbags? What if we could call it that? Like it's the gospel for scumbags of which I am one who is in desperate need of continuing to be saved. What if we began to see Jesus in the gospel as the only righteous and supreme, good, and loving, and sacrificial? What if you didn't think that you were as sacrificial as you think you are? What if you started remembering and realizing that you're not as loving as you think you are? What if you and I began to realize that we are not as good as we think we are? And the people sitting right next to us and across from us and in front of us and behind us are just as much in need of Jesus as we are. Jesus is trying to confront a heart attitude in these Pharisees and scribes who were completely opposed to him. They were, they were opposed to him doing that work deep within their hearts. And what would this look like for you and I to catch a fresh vision of the gospel for scumbags? What would this look like for the way that you go home and relate to your children this evening? Like when, you're, when, you're, when your kid like messes it up big time, like how, how could this relate to the way that you relate to them? What would it look like for you to get down on your knees and pray with your kids? Maybe. I know that for me, like that's been a practice that's been off and on. It's been so hard. It's so hard to continue. I think of the way that if I, if I approach the gospel message in a way that says, man, I'm, I'm a huge scumbag in need of you, Jesus, I think if I could live it out in front of my kids, my church family, our community, how winsome could that be? Like how winsome could that be for my kids, for my wife, for my friends? What if we began to see Jesus as the one who came and lived the life that we could never live and did everything that we don't naturally do? What if this Jesus came to welcome us as scumbags? What if he came to hang out with us as scumbags? What if, what if he came to pursue us, me, as a scumbag? What if, what if I begin to preach a gospel message that said that Jesus came to rescue me and us scumbags from the mess that we've made? Not that everybody else made for us, but that we made, that I made. What if I began to own that and began to say, you know what, Jesus, I need you because I've been a scumbag. What if I began to throw parties? What if, what if we began to throw parties for us, scumbags? 
What if we began to uh, live life in such a way that led other scumbags to repentance, true repentance, which says, I'm owning my sin, I'm repenting and turning from it, and now I need to be set free by the cross of Christ. I need to continue that pattern every day. And we quit believing lies that say, no, I'm actually okay. No, you're not okay. Or believing lies that says, I'm only in this predicament because of what somebody else said or did to me. Like, like I think back, like I, I could be, and I still, like I wrestle with this. Like I didn't grow up with a dad at home, right? So like I really wrestle with, man, how do I discipline my children? How do I pray with them? How do I talk with them? How do I love them? How do I encourage them? And I drop it. I drop the ball all the time. I do. But I, I'm, I'm not in bondage to that though. Like if I was still sitting here saying, you know what? You know, the only reason I act this way, the only reason I do these things is because my dad left when I was a kid. The only reason I do these things is because all those scumbag dads that came around and took advantage of my mom were doing this. I'd still be living the same way that I did back then. But praise God for the gospel. I praise God for the gospel that sets us free. Praise God for the gospel which reminds us that Jesus came to rescue and ransom and save you and I personally as His so that He could purchase us and make us his so that we could then live in freedom. It changed the way that you and I think about Jesus. It could change the way that you and I relate to Jesus. It could change the way that we obey him, seek to live like him. It could change the way that we interact with people around us in our community, in our city, in our church. And we are scumbags and we need Jesus. And that's the reason for communion this evening. As we come and as we enjoy and participate in communion together, it's, a, it's an open picture of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. It's a reminder that Jesus is the great shepherd who came for scumbags. And as you come, I pray that as you come, you're believing in him once again. I pray that some of you, as you come, this is the first time you believed. If you're here and you're like, I'm not a believer. I don't believe in Jesus. I reject everything you're saying. I'll let you off the hook. Don't come and engage in communion. To do so would be to drink judgment upon yourself. I don't want that. There'll be a few of us near the front to pray with you. And there'll be a few people here to serve communion as well. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for coming and saving scumbags like us. Help us to come. Help us to come and engage in communion this evening, remembering your broken body, your shed blood, the work of the cross, the message of the gospel, the good news which says though we were trapped in our sin, though we ran off the nearest cliff, though we were really stinky sheep, though we are like sheep who have gone astray, you came, you pursued us, you're throwing parties in heaven, you're helping us to repent. Jesus, thank you for being there. A shepherd who saves scumbags. Amen. Thanks for letting me preach, guys. I love you. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.